to Mental Selling, the sales performance podcast, a show from Integrity Solutions. This is a podcast for passionate leaders in sales and customer service who are driven by purpose, not just a paycheck. People who want to create broader and deeper connections with customers and their teams by building trust and mastering the critical mental and emotional sides of sales. Ready to rise up to the top of your game? Let's get right into the show. What do we mean by modern selling today? And what are the core aspects of sales pipeline creation that the modern seller needs to understand and leverage? And how do things like social selling, pipeline creation and acceleration, and account-based selling all interconnect? Our guest today on mental selling is one of the leading experts on all of these things and more. He's Jamie Shanks. Jamie is a CEO, and he's a well-known author of books, including Social Selling Mastery and Spear Selling. Jamie is in Toronto, Canada, and thank you for joining us so much today where I know you're actually away on vacation with your family. So thanks so much for taking time with us, Jamie. Thanks so much for the invite. So by brief introduction, Jamie has been a 10-year CEO of the professional services firm Sales for Life and also now leads the startup SaaS firm Pipeline Signals. Jamie, let's start with a fairly open-ended question, but a, a critical one, I think especially for this podcast, given our focus on mental selling, which is what do you think scares salespeople the most today? And along those lines, what do you think they tend to avoid? You know, I actually don't think that a seller wakes up every day and thinks about quota attainment as much as maybe their RVP or SVP of sales does. So, you know, maybe some people would have said, well, not reaching quota. I think that what scares them is that a sales professional knows in their heart of heart that they need to control their own destiny and most likely prospect because the inbound flow will not be enough to achieve the goals that are set forth by themselves or their company. So I think that that fear is, okay, I know if I've just reverse engineered my goal and the flow that comes inbound that I need to make up 90%, 80%, 70% on my own, but that I don't either have the skills, the tenacity, the gumption, the whatever it is to actually pick up the phone, send emails, write LinkedIn messages, mail a letter to do the actual work necessary to build the right type of pipeline coverage to reach goals. And I think that also that fear stems from a lack of objectivity to understanding where to start. So what account should I focus on today, not tomorrow? Should I focus on account A versus account B? I don't think account selection, account prioritization is taught very well. There's not enough sales intelligence given to sellers or it's given to them, but it's not taught on how to use it. And so there's a lot of subjectivity. Sellers are just licking their fingers, putting it in the wind, calling through the phone book or alphabet with no rhyme or reason. I think that scares sellers as they just don't know where to start. And is that part of what you're talking about around being basically more organized, more strategic, more focused? Is that on the shoulders of the sales leader to be helping them? or I think that what's on the shoulders of the sales leaders is help with decision-making best practices. So, okay, so as a sales professional, you can control only two things. I control the decisions I make and I control the actions I take. But decision-making isn't taught very often or well. 
And I believe that that's the frontline sales manager. And then above them, the RVP or SVP of sales, their responsibility is to take all of their infinite wisdom and tech stack and say, here's how we are going to design a go-to-market strategy and sales process that creates objectivity around decision-making. And what should we focus on an account? And should we abandon an account based on these data points? When should we do this in an account? I think that decision-making is rarely discussed and brought forward into organizations as full training curriculum to help the sales professionals. And as part of the fear, you know, lack of tenacity, the things you were talking about earlier, is it based on just sort of what they, you know, they don't want to bother people? They feel like they're, they're, they're interrupting people's day. Is it they're, they don't really sort of believe in what they're doing? Is it like, what do you think when you peel back the onion, what do you think is really underneath it? Is it that they got into sales and didn't really realize what that meant? That's a great, you, you brought up something that's really important is the believing that you are adding tremendous amounts of value. I'll tell you a story that might actually paint this picture. So my very first sales job, I was in commercial real estate, 100% commission. I was calling CFOs and CEOs of companies in Toronto that had offices. And we sold the idea that you could move from you know, one office space to another. Six months into the job, I had to cold call. And the mandate for me was I had to talk to 12 CFOs or CEOs every day and book one meeting. That was kind of the mathematics. And I was doing this for six months and I was good at getting people on the phone, but I was a lost soul. I didn't know what I was doing. And the CEO pulled me aside and he said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I, you know, I'm talking to CEOs and CFOs. I'm 25 years old. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And he said, well, how many real estate deals have you worked on in the last six months since you got here? I said, well, 15. He said, did you know that the average CFO in the city of Toronto, Canada, will work on one major real estate transaction in their entire career. And you've worked on 15. You already have 15 times more experience than the average chief financial officer. They need your help. They need all the things that you're seeing. And anyways, long and the short, it changed me instantaneously. Never since then, the products for most of my life, I've sold services. So most of the services and solutions that I've sold, I had to, you really do have to believe that you are either making people money, saving them money, or mitigating risk. The three core value creators in a business. And so you mentioned something that's important. I hadn't thought of it that way, that perhaps the sellers don't inherently understand what this is really doing for their customers that can add value. But I also think the fear factor comes in for to poor preparation. What I think is happening is sales ops or revenue operations and sales enablement are giving them the tools, but aren't helping them shape the mindset and the skill sets of understanding properly. How do I use these tools to my advantage to create more yield and more throughput and have more conversations so I can help more people? And if we kind of lend sales to that helping perspective, I, I think that would help. Yeah, and like you said, there's there's so much at their fingertips, but they need that that guidance on sort of how do all those puzzle pieces fit together. So that leads into the next thing I wanted to get into, which is you, you talk and, and write a lot about modern selling, capital M, capital S, 
you strongly advocate for it. And I'd like you to talk about a bit, if you could, just what do you mean by modern selling and, and what is its value as, as we sit here in, you know, in 2022? Yeah. And 20 and 2004 or five is where I started my sales career. There was barely a computer on my desk. It was truly a list, a pencil and a phone call, go have at it. Then by the time I started sales consulting in 2010, there was obviously computers on every desk and internet. And, you know, there were websites that I could peruse to identify my buyer. But LinkedIn was barely a tool. It was a recruiting tool at best. And I helped pioneer and invent this idea of social selling. Now in 2022, you have all these tools to help on both the left side and the right side of your brain for prospecting. And ultimately, as a prospector, you are collecting data and intelligence to make informed decisions on the left side of your brain, taking that data and intelligence and turning it into stories that resonate with people on the right side of your brain and that you can act in a bold and different way to your competition. The modern seller is embracing social platforms, data sets, sales engagement tools, you know, video, anything they can to collect intelligence better, faster, cheaper than their competition and engage the customer in a way that they're not being engaged by your competition. That's the modern seller. It's actually just embracing the fact that in the last 10 years, there's been more technological advancement in sales than the last 100. Take it, put it on your back, learn it and run with it because it's there to increase your yield, your throughput. And how do you, to build on that just a bit before we keep going, the a more experienced seller, somebody that's been in selling 15, 20 years, that is resistant to things like, like LinkedIn or like video, what do you, what's your sort of selling point or way to get an aha moment in their mind around leveraging those things if they're, if they're still not doing it today? Yes. So first, that seller, that seller has to have a mental inflection point of losing deals and or missing quota for them to, I think, have that awakening that the way that things have been run in the past doesn't necessarily dictate the way of success in the future. If you have the old dog, so to speak, who's made 150% of plan every year for 15 years, if they choose not to change, they don't need to change because what they're doing is working. I believe inevitably it would catch up to them. But, and then now let's get to the tactical side. Let's assume that they've had an awakening, had a bad two years during COVID, right? Had to completely change their go to market in COVID. They went from field sellers to really expensive inside sellers, really during COVID. Right. And so many salespeople did. Yeah, so exactly. So now let's take video as an example. So you're now sitting at home from your couch talking to your customers. What do you believe is the best way to humanize yourself? What do you believe is the fastest way to convey information and not writing people six paragraph essays on uh, email? And how do you track buying intent? How do you actually know which customers have, are engaged and not? Think about account selection and account prioritization. Video accomplishes all those things that the written word can't do. 
And so you then have to give them the skill set, the understanding that this particular tool is going to give you three competitive advantages in this new post-COVID world that you get to provide a name to a face that you couldn't do, that you didn't think you could do. Number two, it allows you to say so much in so little amount of time. And number three, I can track everybody that opens it. So I think that's what you're going to have to do is first, each of those sellers that aren't changing have to have a moment where they have to have an awakening. Otherwise, you could tell them all the great stuff. They just won't change. But then you have to correlate how these tools solve specific challenges in sales. Like, I can't figure out who I should focus in on, or I don't think our customers know who I am. Well, use video instead of email. That, that might be the best way. So we'll, we're, I'm eager to get into the intent signals aspect of your expertise and your point of view. Quickly before we do that, I want to have sort of a pivot to a cus- the customer's perception of salespeople. And basically, what do you think customers want the most that they tend to get the least of from salespeople? And I'm not even, I don't even want to use the word trusted advisor. I think that's kind of like overkill, but I want a peer. I want, if as a buyer, I'm a buyer, I own two companies. And when I buy, I want somebody to walk me down the path to save me a lot of headache and time of making wrong decisions. Guide me to understand what is the market that I'm about to embark into? How do I execute this quickly? Don't be afraid to tell me about yourself versus the others in the market. Why should I choose you? And in fact, if you are open and honest about it and paint that that picture of your ecosystem, I'm probably going to choose you anyways because you were the first to teach me this. That's what I want. I, I, I just want it like, Somebody sitting on my shoulder helping me make decisions. That's the, the role. The best sellers are that. And I can tell you, I'll give you a prime example. I'm in the midst of shopping for a generator for my cottage. Generators are not expensive. $15,000 for the device. Then you need the transfer boxes. Then you need the labor of installation. You're talking like 20 some thousand dollars. Well, there are a handful of companies, but I called an electrician that I knew who also is a reseller of one of the brands. He gave me the whole laydown of here are the different models from the different competitors. Here's how they work technologically. Here's what it all means. I'm probably going to go with the brand that he resells, but he's at least helped me understand the landscape. And the difference between his devices and his competitors are so nominal. I'm just going to go with like the, you know, the devil I know kind of thing. Right. And there's that, like you said earlier, that the risk mitigation factor is such a critical part of what buyers want. And can sellers do that instead of just sort of spouting their product features and things like that? It's so as we sit here and you, and you read a lot in the news about, you know, varying opinions and perspectives on where you know, global economies are going, what do you think salespeople need to be doing or pivoting towards or just being more proactive about as, you know, economic, we'll call them economic headwinds continue to, to gain steam. And we'll, and we'll see in the, you know, over the next six to 12 months, what comes to fruition and what doesn't. But, but what do salespeople you think need to be doing now in that sort of just in case a, a you know, economic downturns are on the horizon? 
I'm going to make this not long, but it's an important one for, I think, sellers. I want you to be the chief financial officer of a company because ultimately as a sales professional, you need to understand how a business functions. So pre-COVID, you probably had two different go-to-markets. You had a, a team that sat on inbound leads or did some outbound prospecting as BDRs and that fed account executives, as an example, deal flow. And those account executives were traditionally very expensive. And then during COVID, everyone became virtual, right? Everyone became an inbound or an outbound BDR and SDR, essentially, inside sellers. And CFOs around the world noticed they either didn't skip a beat from a revenue perspective, or there might have been a slight decline or change to the revenue mix, but their operating expenses, their cost of customer acquisition plummeted because they weren't on planes, trains, and automobiles everywhere. Now we're, we've, you know, we're leaving or have left this post-COVID world, but we're now entering a recession or depression. I don't believe that customers are just magically going to be inviting you into their office. A, travel has gotten prohibitively expensive. Travel is a nightmare. As a guy who was on 80 flights a year for five years in a row, like it, it's become unfun. Customers, customers are not just flicking a switch and say, yeah, just let's just pour people into our corporate offices just to meet us. So all those days are done. And so your CFO is looking at that PL and is not going to send you on plane, trains, and automobiles. So you're going to be selling in this virtual digital world maybe forever, because it has been proven that you can now do five figures, six figures, seven figure deals over Zoom. So what does that mean? It means that you will be able to employ talent from other places around the world. Now, talent doesn't have to reside within a 10 mile radius of your office. All of North America and eventually the world becomes your oyster. So you're going to be competing against talent globally. Number two, if you cannot embrace virtual selling, you will not survive because you're not going to have an expense report that says, yeah, by the way, feel free to jump on a plane every Monday morning to go visit your customers. That's just not going to happen. So, and, and then the third is with technological advancements, I believe that sales teams are really going to look at separating what are $5 an hour tasks versus $500 an hour value creators? And all the things that are rote and mechanical and they'll use technology or offshore labor to be able to, you know, as an example, collect sales intelligence so that they can focus a core group of sellers on just winning deals and expanding their customer base, uh, like upselling and cross-selling. And so I think sales teams will be more concentrated. They will be smaller but they will be much more productive. They will create much more yield per seller. And the average chief revenue officer who their natural playbook pre-COVID used to be, oh, we need more sales, open headcount. Let's go hire somebody in Texas, hire somebody in Washington. Their whole playbook was about increasing headcount, thus would eventually increase revenue. I think those days are going to be done because the average CFO, again, is going to be tightening their belts on Headcount's extremely expensive. And there's so much opportunity, like you said, in untapped 
as you call it, yield per seller, right? That, that is there and the ability to expand within existing accounts that the knee jerk of just, well, let's add more to the sales team is sort of simplistic, right? Yeah. So I, I think there's a big financial calculus that's being done that is rolling from the COVID calculus into, you know, big economic headwind calculus. And I don't think headcounts are just going to magically start skyrocketing. I think that there will be finding ways to make more from less. Yeah. So let's get into what I, what is the biggest thing I, I love in reading your stuff. And when I read Social Selling Mastery, it's all about this idea of salespeople needing to focus on what you call intent signals and, and relationship and intelligence signals. Can you can you talk about that? And why they're, they're so critical for salespeople and, and, and how do salespeople focus their, you know, their, their minds and their, and their, their time more around them? Well, you just mentioned the most important piece. So Gartner has been studying, as everybody's probably talked about, the percentage of sellers that make sales quota attainment, and it's moved in the wrong direction for 10 years. So less and less sellers are making their quota. And then Gartner bought a firm called Topo which was measuring the percentage of sellers that were not making their quota and trying to figure out why. What Tobo found out was that 83.4% of sellers that didn't make their quota, you could chalk it up to poor time management. So now let's dive into poor time management. I believe the biggest time vampire that exists is around account selection and account prioritization. Sellers subjectively just start calling through, you know, your company's in, t- in Tennessee, just calling A through Z in the phone book of companies in Tennessee, but with no rhyme or reason. Why am I focused on account A versus account B? Why am I going to call them today, not tomorrow? What sales intelligence provides you is a window of objectivity. And there are various categories. Buying intent is a very popular category. It's telling you who's raising their hand, Googling keywords, downloading your eBooks and saying, hey, I want to know I'm drinking out of a Yeti water bottle. I want to know more about Yeti. Teach me more. That's a reason to give them a call. I focus, my company Pipeline Signals is pioneering a topic called relationship signals. I believe that humans are the ones that make decisions in businesses, not businesses themselves. So follow the humans. Which humans got hired into an account that came from your happy customers? So now you have an advocate or an asymmetric competitive advantage in that business. We call it follow your fans. Or as an example, who just got hired in all the accounts that you're prospecting right now? Tell me which accounts just hired new key stakeholders or promoted new key stakeholders that give you a reason to reach out because you know in that first 100 days on the job, they're going to make massive decisions around new initiatives. So it's it's about leveraging that sales intelligence to make objective decisions about where you focus your time. Yeah. And just that, it's such a, a, a critical but easy tool in LinkedIn, right? To to look at your target accounts and who are the new hires in the roles that are important to you that are influencers, decision makers in the, that last you know, 90, 100 days, whatever it might be. Such an untapped resource. When I I first met you and, and heard you speak again after the release of your book Social Selling Mastery, how do how do you describe social selling and wh- where do salespeople maybe get crossed up in social selling versus social marketing as you know sort of uh, an essential part of their their toolkit? 
I actually have a diagram that defines it like fishing. For anybody that's listening that's a fisher, fisherman, woman, social media marketing, or yeah, I guess that's what you would call it. Think of it as fishing with a, a net. So what you do is you drag it across the bottom. I'm going to hear it a lake as an example. Drag it across the lake floor. You pull up that net and inside will be fish, crabs, snakes, everything you want. And you then choose from your inbound flow, which creatures of the sea do you want to keep? And so social media marketing is about putting yourself out there to draw as a magnet people inbound. Now, my course, Social Selling Mastery, was heavily indexed on that piece, creating trusted advisors, inbound magnets, you know, reputation management. And then what came from that is our customers said, well, we have an outbound flow. And what we need to do is do account-based sales development. So we created SPEAR, which is an acronym for Select, Plan, Engage, Activate, and Reprioritize Your Total Addressable Market. It's a very account-based model. and what that has is truly the acronym now in fishing, fish with a spear. I'm going out to the deeper water. I'm waiting for the marlin. I'm waiting for the tuna. And I am targeting a specific account rather than dragging a net through the ocean. You leveraging all these tools that we're talking about, social, focusing on intent signals, things like that. It feeds into this idea of, uh, like you talked about earlier, how much the salesperson has in their control and at their fingertips if they'll just use them, right? And so what's the what's the mindset that you think salespeople need to have around outbound prospecting? Again, outbound versus inbound expectations, you know, that sort of thing. The best well, it becomes that becomes a, a revenue operations exercise up front, but the best way to think about it is let's say your sales quota is a million dollars. Okay. And then you reverse engineer, what does a million dollars mean after you look at your average contract value? How many units do I need to sell in a year to achieve that million dollars? What I'm trying to do is reverse engineer goals all the way down to milestones and objectives, all the way down to the things I can control, actions and activities. And inevitably, you're going to get down to a number. Let's use a simple number. Million dollars, you need 20 units to get to a million dollars. I think if I did the math, that's what is that? $50,000 deals. Okay. Well, we have for every sales qualified lead I create, I typically win four. Well, my 20 units just went to 80 units. I need to book 80 meetings, SQLs, in a year to highly influence the ability to get to my goal. So from that vantage point, I now need to focus in on the pieces that I can control. And I then start to think about, okay, well, what percentage of that flow is naturally coming to me from marketing to get to my 80 units? And you go, oh my God, last year, I only had eight. Okay, well, that means 72 units need to be made up somewhere else. And I need to control those 72 units. So now I need to do a series of reverse engineering math to figure out what do I need to do every day, week, month, and quarter to highly influence 72 divided by 52 weeks in a year? I need to have at least a meeting every week. How do I get there? I need to have so many conversations. That, I mean, to somebody who's been doing this since I was, you know, early 20s, that's pretty intuitive stuff. Now, for younger sellers, they don't realize 
that that is the exercise that they should be doing every quarter in quarterly planning and every annual year. Because if you are not doing that and you recognize that only eight of your 80 SQLs are going to come inbound, you are going to be so woefully behind your sales quota when you realize you did not create 72 other sales qualified leads. To what extent do you think there's still a lot of sales teams that, you know, the, the things like, you know, the win rate and the average deal size that they actually don't even really know what those are? Amazingly, you know, I, like you, you know, my company Sales for Life enabled 600 global customers over 10 years, global enterprise and global mid-market. You know, the small customers of ours were in the hundreds of millions. Most were closer to a billion. You know, it blew my mind that many sales teams I would encounter were less sophisticated than the sales team in my $3 million consulting company. And it's because they were product and engineering led. They were they built the best widget and boobob on planet Earth for their industry. But they, you know, they were in the 1990s from a sales process standpoint. The average seller couldn't tell you what their average deal size was. They couldn't tell you what their IC, ICP are, their ideal customer profile. They couldn't tell you how many sales qualified leads do they need to have every month, week and month to get to their goal. Like Some of the most basic things were not known. Yeah, it's amazing that it, that, that does still exist, like you said, even in much larger companies. Let's talk a bit about account-based selling, which is, is all the rage right now, right? And... What's, so what's your point of view around account-based selling? And, and maybe it's, I, I think to some extent, it's like, it's not a new thing, right? It's the way salespeople should be selling all along. But just given that, like with account-based selling, what's the mindset shift that is required in salespeople given, you know, more expansive buying committees, the importance of, of nurturing multiple relationships, sort of the, the relationship between the quote-unquote lead that they have and others that they need to engage with in the organization, sort of how they navigate that. Can you talk about that? Sure. So it's a financial inevitability as a company grows. And I think first, let's help sellers understand why it exists. When you start a company from pre-seed to seed to series A, so my companies, as an example, Sales for Life, Pipeline Signals has just graduated from, say, pre-seed to seed. What happens is you can create a content flywheel, a content marketing flywheel that typically, because your total addressable market will be so large and so blue ocean, brand new, that you can create enough inbound flow to feed everybody in the business. As the company crosses, say, $10 million, for it to continue growing at a certain compounded growth, it requires bigger fish from the ocean. You can't live on the worms and the crabs anymore. You need to keep moving up. And what happens is your database of inbound flow, you'll, you start to notice, like, we just keep getting these small deals coming to us when, in fact, we need to win the bigger deals. So you try other things like you adjust your prices and you do all kinds of financial mechanics. And then eventually you come to realize the only way, now we're in there tens of millions and we get into hundreds of millions. The only way to get to our goal is we need to win the million-dollar account, and we need 10 of those every year. And so now we need to pick and choose the sea urchins that we need to win, the whales and the tunas and the marlins, to get to our goal. So that's why account-based 
inevitably for any company at scale has to move to that direction. One of the biggest challenges is in the sales training world, sometimes micro or subscaled businesses are the ones training global enterprise companies on what they did to scale, but they're a micro enterprise that can actually live on inbound, whereas the customer is a full outbound account-based world because they're so big. Now, as a seller, you're now in an account-based world, and you're typically broken up in three different ways. You're broken up by geography account-based, a vertical or industry, or a set of named accounts. So whatever of the three go-to-markets that you have, now what you need to do is you need to start building a business plan like this is your total addressable market. You're either given 50 accounts or you're given a geography or you're given a vertical. And you first need to build a diagram that outlines. And we typically taught this to people. We use it as a drive analogy. It looks like a car transmission. You build a pie chart. What accounts are in park, reverse, neutral, drive? You need to be able to dictate and understand what does my market look like today and what are my goals one quarter from now and one year from now to shrink the pie of the parked accounts or the reverse accounts or the neutral accounts and bring them into drive. That exercise is the most fundamental thing that you have to do. If you don't understand what that market actually looks like, then all that you're doing is like putting around in a boat going from fishing hole to fishing hole with no real sense of, are there fish in this lake? Are I even fishing in the right spot? Like you have to build an actual plan to get to where you want to go to. You know, there's a million other things that you need to do, but if you can't visualize your account-based market that you can control, it doesn't matter what you do after that, you'll be a lost soul. How do you, how do you recommend sellers engage with, you know, like you said, if you're a $15 million company trying to get to 20, you can't nickel and dime your, your way to that. You've got to find the half a million, million dollar accounts. And again, inevitably those have, you know, there's a lot of different research out there, but six, call it six, seven, eight different stakeholders, decision makers, et cetera. How do you engage with the various decision makers in an intelligent way? That's not just because we all get these emails, right? Where in, in your, you'll be in a, in your organization and you get the exact same email from a salesperson sent to like nine people in the company, right? And everybody starts sharing the email like, oh, this might be for you. And yeah, I just got that exact same email. And that's just so, it's lazy from my perspective. One of the things that we've done in the past, and in fact, I'm about to do this with Pipeline Signals. We want to use a tool like a, like a PandaDoc, where what we do is we create best practice documents for each use case or buyer persona that is within that buying committee. So let's use my business. My business sells to the head of sales, marketing, demand generation, revenue operations, and enablement. So those are like the functions that, that depending on who you talk to in the organization will be part of something like pipeline signals. Well, what we need to do is I may have been brought into the business through the chief marketing officer. And so now there are others in the organization I haven't met yet. I, as an example, will connect with each of those key stakeholders before any meeting, sending them a personalized LinkedIn message. And I might actually on LinkedIn then send them 
a link to a document on best practices. Here are some best practices. And again, it's not like a sales sheet. It are here are best practices around relationship sales intelligence pertaining to the RevOps function. The idea that you can centralize now all job changes in the world into your CRM. The idea that you would know what customers have the highest, what prospects have the highest concentration of past customers in them. Your database will counter grow against the decay rate of a natural CRM because we're now backfilling it. You know, all these kind of things. You've got to pre-educate all these people without like overtly trying to sell them. Because if you don't, what will happen is they'll come to meetings. Some won't even show up, but the ones that do, you're going to get this on the call. So I was invited to this meeting. Why are we on this call? What do you guys do? And now for the people who were highly educated on the call, they're like, oh my God, I got to spend the next 20 minutes on this call doing like redoing everything you've done in the past. So these are some of the little tactical things that you can build these best practice documents. And you can even use LinkedIn. They've got something called smart links. And you put content into these smart links for each buyer persona and you send it to those people in advance. Try to pre-educate them. The other reason you can do this is you can track buying intent. Are those other people in the buying committee actually engaged in this? And if they're not, it's a bit of a sign that they're not as bought in to this idea that as you think they are. Right. It's, it's a good example of the intent signals thing, right? Because if you're sending the content like that, that's value added and you're sending it in the right ways where you can tell, are they opening it, reading it? That's, you know, that's why you don't send it like attachments to people, right? Because you can't tell what he or she is looking at. What do you think just, this is sort of a broad question, but just what do you think moves the needle the most on sales pipelines today? And, and, and also, can you talk a bit about the difference between what's the difference between a sales pipeline and a sales funnel? Because I've seen you write something about this. Yeah. So a sales funnel is the actual flow. Okay, let's use it as like a, and I'm, I'm big on analogies. Again, a funnel, you've, you've got a bucket that needs to collect water and you have a tap. The funnel are the sources of flow that come in. And so, as an example of both Sales for Life and Pipeline Signals, we have inbound, we have outbound, like actual sales-based, account-based selling. We have channel. We have customers who refer us to other customers or potential customers. And then we have customers that then expand their own project sets. So those are the five sources. So your funnel is what's going to, where are you going to get the sources of sales qualified leads coming in. The pipeline coverage is now is an engineering exercise of the number of units and the dollar value of those units that you need to have in opportunity at any given time to reach your sales target of any given time. So let's make this a little more easy to understand. My sales target is a million dollars. We broke it down where you need 20 units to get to that target. A pipeline coverage ratio is using historical averages that you might need to, you will win one out of every four deals, means that you will need to have 80 units inside your CRM as opportunities at any given time to give yourself the highest probability that at any given moment in time, you won't even know which deals you're going to win. 
but that 20 will constantly be one and 20 that you'll win them 20 will fall out as wins some will be as losses and that the flow your funnel will come back in to backfill that and at any given time that pipeline coverage is always sitting at 80 units so my pipeline coverage as an example at pipeline signals we're now winning 33% of every sales qualified leads, but we forecasted based on a one in four or 25% win rate. So I need to have four times the number of opportunities as per the monthly sales target that we have every month going on. And that monthly sales target's growing like this. So as it grows, that pipeline coverage ratio needs to have at least four times as many companies in opportunity stage at all times. Otherwise, statistically, I will fall down at some point in the future. And it's a good point. You talk about this sort of like never ending flow or circle that needs to be happening. And that's why talk about that mistaken mindset a salesperson might have if let's say, you know, well, I've, I've, I've reached my million dollar goal, or I've got, you know, a $750,000, you know, Marlin, that's just landed on my the deck of my boat. I don't need to be doing prospecting and outbound as much for the foreseeable future because look what I have, right? That's a, that's a mistaken mindset, isn't it? Well, it's a mistake because inevitably, even when you do win your deal, you reset back to zero at some point. And two, it is far easier. The concept of inertia, an object in motion wants to stay in motion prospecting a little bit every day is far great far easier than it is doing giant bursts of catch up prospecting so keeping sales qualified leads trickling in just as you win that $750,000 deal is exponentially easier on you and on the company that one day in the future, when you do win that deal, you'll have this other backfill of opportunities rather than now having to pause and spending like an entire summer prospecting your brains out just to get caught back up. You'll really regret having to do it. And in fact, those are the moments where you become unhappy, you think about leaving. Uh, and again, because everything feels more daunting, right? Yeah, everything feels more done. You just haven't built, you haven't built a sustainable business, you know. No, and I, as a as a marketing leader, I that it resonates with me because I think the same holds true for marketing and, and brand building, right? Like a little bit at a time, consistently builds up, and you can't stop what you're doing, and then all of a sudden, six months from now, think you're going to pick up where you left off, right? You're going to have a much steep. You've created a much steeper hill to climb. One quick thing I wanted to ask before we get to our last question, because you touched on this, and it's around referrals. And do you think salespeople ask their customers for referrals enough? And if they don't, what's behind why they don't? If you've got these great, happy customers that have seen great ROI, they're well-connected, they're senior level, isn't that such an untapped resource? Yeah, and I don't think they know how. And in fact, we... we we taught in our social selling mastery program, the there's an actual mechanics to doing it through LinkedIn because imagine Will, I just wanted to ask you for a referral. Hey, Will, can you give me a referral to you know another sales organization? You'd say, well, you know, I have 4,000 LinkedIn connections. 
Who should I refer you to? What size of company? You're not giving proper direction. One of the tactical things that you could work with your customer success team, take a look at the social network of the person who works at your customer that you want to ask for a referral. Click on the company tab on LinkedIn. So it takes that person's entire social network and you click the company tab. It will place in order of operations all of their social connections ranked in order. Take those three to five top companies. Those are the companies they used to work at, their spouse works at, their best friend works at, their top customer. They have like 25 connections, whatever. Yeah, yeah. then ask them for a referral from those specific companies and give them the messaging necessary to broker the introduction. Now your referral probability skyrockets. You've pointed out that I want a referral to this pen company. Number two, you've told them what to say. Now they don't have to scramble, try to figure out what to, what to do next. And that's important because otherwise your referral rates are, are pretty low. And I think that's why people say, well, I asked for referrals, but nobody does it. Well, it's because you put all the work on them. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, you can't, you can't put the onus on the customer to do the work for you. You've got to make it easy. Of, of here's who I'd love to get a referral to and, and why. I'd like to wrap up by talking a bit about coaching because we always like to talk about coaching on this podcast and, and why it's, it's such a critical part of setting salespeople up for success. So why do you think coaching is and mentoring is so important for sellers and especially younger sellers? Well, I think it's important because if you had all the answers, you'd already be the best seller in the world kind of thing. You'd already be reaching all of your goals. And I don't know that anybody's, there are people that are born with the inherent skills to succeed in sales, but nobody's born the, a great seller. This is a career of learning. And so if you are not meeting people and taking from them their trials and tribulations and their best practices, you're making up roads that you're, car you're trying to carve paths in roads that don't need to be carved. They've already been blazed for you. I've had a mentor in my businesses since I've started. And, you know, every couple of years, you might change mentors, but I wouldn't be, my companies would never have survived without those mentors because I was trying to do things myself. And it was a mentor who would immediately see like, what are you doing? Like that already exists or that platform exists or you can get help this way. You're wasting your time or that's not important. Don't focus on those things. Coaching is just a massive time saver and risk mitigator. And what do you say? Because I'm, I'm sure you see this just like we see it with companies all the time. What do you say to companies where the sales leaders will nod their head about, you know, coaching is important and it's a, a critical driver of attaining their goals. But then you dig deeper and find out that they're really still not doing it. What's the sort of the gap there and how do you how do you sort of explain that they say it's important but they're not the reality is they're not doing it yeah that's the kind of sales leaders uh, like are you talking frontline sales managers that say that they're running their one-on-ones but they're not doing the coaching those are the kind of sales leaders that uh, frankly if they're not doing it i think they're you replace them <laughs> so there are either sales leaders that believe in their heart of hearts that their job when you become a sales leader, your job is to enable your sellers to be highly successful. That is it. You are a people manager. You are a coach. That, 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 that is the job because yeah. you're not supposed to airdrop into deals anymore. 
<laughs> your job is to make the people with working with you better. And so if you're not doing the coaching, then what are you doing? I think you just get replaced. Like, I, I don't even have a response even to help those people. You have to, you have, you took the job because you want to be a coach. Right. They have to. And, and that's, I think what happens is that mindset of, as you really well described, that that's their job. Sometimes they don't really embrace that, right? Or they don't understand it or yeah, there's just such a gap there. So we're going to wrap up today and I want to thank Jamie Shanks again so much. Jamie, thank you for being with us. This has been such a really insightful time with us. You can follow Jamie on Twitter at Jamie T. Shanks. You can, of course, find Jamie on LinkedIn. Jamie talked so much about LinkedIn and, and he is there quite a bit and publishes a lot of really excellent content. Your websites, I want to make sure I have correctly, Jamie, pipelinesignals.com and the other is salesforlife.com salesforlife.com. And again, Jamie's books are titled Social Selling Mastery and more recently Spear Selling. So please connect with Jamie, follow him. You'll learn a lot from reading and you'll also see a lot of video content from Jamie where he shares a lot of great insights. Thank you to everybody for joining us today on Mental Selling. Please subscribe if you're not already on whatever podcast platform you might be listening on. Leave us a comment or a review. You can also follow Integrity Solutions on LinkedIn, or you can find us on Twitter at sell underscore integrity. And thank you for listening. Jamie, thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your vacation with your family. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for the invite. And thanks, everyone. Have a great day, and we will catch up with you next time. You've been listening to Mental Selling, an Integrity Solutions podcast. Stay in touch with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player and following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please give us a rating, leave a comment and share episodes you love. That helps us keep empowering sales and service leaders to master the mental side of selling. Until next time, let's go out and create amazing customer experiences.